And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 9 through 11 of Luke 24. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. (laughs) So quickly observe the awkward honesty of the gospel account. First, as I touched on last Sunday, the first people to come upon the empty tomb are women. Remember that women in the first century world were largely illiterate. They were thought to be generally ignorant. Their testimony was inadmissible in the court of law. So once again, this is awkward. It's, it's remarkably honest. Uh, it is not any way that you would write the story if you're trying to create an audience that this happened in terms of myth or legend. You just wouldn't have women find the empty tomb. But this story, all four Gospels say, it was the women who found the empty tomb. And the women are astounded by what they hear from this angel of God that Jesus has risen from the dead. They run back. They tell the men. Now, these are the hand-chosen apostles that Jesus said, you're going to be my students, you're going to follow me, then you're going to carry on my mission when I'm gone. And they hear these women. Keep in mind that some of the women are their mothers. And according to Luke, they didn't believe them. They thought it was an idle tale. I mean, how disrespectful is that, right? But you can't blame them. Uh, you know, the, the, the Greek word here is literally implies nonsense. They thought it was nonsense. But you know why. I mean, dead people are dead. They don't get up and walk around. You said you saw an angel. Yeah, you know what? I don't think so. I've never seen an angel. I don't think they exist. I want you to see that these men gathered together in the profound disillusionment of our movement is over. They're just as inclined to be skeptical and not believe any of this report about the risen Jesus Christ and angels or any of that. And that's actually in the text. They absolutely rejected the claim. They rejected any notion that this man Jesus would be alive three days after they saw him publicly crucified. And it doesn't matter that these women have just sworn that they saw this angel announce his resurrection. They're not going to believe it. They can't make themselves believe it. It seems like nonsense to them. The Greek word here is they didn't believe it. It's apistio. Pistio is the Greek word for having faith, so apistio is literally they had no faith as a result of what the women were saying. Luke tells us further there in verse 12 that Peter, the leader of the whole apostles, is like, well, I'll go check it out. He goes down. He sees that the tomb is empty. And Luke simply says that he was astonished and marveled to himself what could have happened. He's not believing that Jesus is resurrected. He's just wondering, how does this work? Where, where, where did they take his body? Who would take his body? But he's not believing that he's resurrected. The absence of a dead body does not a Savior make. The empty tomb just raises difficult questions. It doesn't answer any. You know, the same thing with Christmas. I mean, the birth of a child to a peasant woman who claims to have been a virgin does not answer any questions. It just raises a lot of questions. What I want you to see is that the witness of the four Gospels honestly records how ordinary people struggle to make sense of all of this. And then we really come to a very specific story about that in the next verses that follow, beginning with verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem? Who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, 
what things? Now, uh, let's consider who these two disciples are for a minute. Once again, it's not just two random people. That's one of them actually has a name, Cleopas. And this guy, we never hear from him anywhere else except possibly in John 19 when we hear that Mary, uh, the wife of Cleopas, is standing close to the cross with her sister, who is Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if Cleopas and Clopas, that says Clopas and John, Cleopas and Luke, if they're the same person, then this quite possibly could be Uncle Cleopas and Aunt Mary who are walking, you know, to a mass. Anyways, I thought that was interesting. Certainly these two disciples are very uh, knowledgeable of the facts. Their hearts are broken. They're discussing these things. Now watch what happens. According to Luke, the risen Jesus comes alongside of them and says, what are you talking about? This is so incredibly important. I think for a lot of us, when we think about God, we think we got to go find him. we we got to go read all the world's religions. We, we have to go like delve in all kinds of degrees of spirituality so that we can have an experience with God if we could only find him. <laughs> this says, no, he's going to find you. He's going to come and, and, and engage you in the conversation that you're having. And he's going to ask a lot of questions. And, you know, we really think maybe it's disingenuous. You know, if Jesus rose from the dead, he's the resurrected son of God. Surely he's omniscient. He knows everything anyways. You know, maybe Jesus is asking the question not because he doesn't know the answers, but because he knows that we need to air our grievances. Jesus is very sincere in his question. What are you talking about? What's on your hearts? Tell me how you're feeling, what you're thinking, how you're processing what you've seen and what you've heard. Talk to me. And in response to this question, the two disciples stop. They just simply stop walking. They're looking at each other with tremendous sadness. <laughs> I'll just give you a parallel experience, all right? So you're in New York City on September 14th, 2001. And they're, you know, you're talking with your friend, and you're sad, and you're shaking your heads. Because why? Because the World Trade Center just got you know, destroyed by terrorists. And some Yahoo comes along and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? That's the situation. Are you serious? Are you seriously asking us the question, what are we talking about? That's the way Cleopas responds. He responds out of his pain. It's a cynical question. He says, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I mean, he's essentially saying, are you a complete idiot? Is it possible that you can be so clueless, so insensitive, so out of touch with the pain that we're experiencing? Have you missed out on all the things that just happened? Now, I want you to see that Jesus is not the least bit offended by this sarcastic remark. He's not hurt. He doesn't leave. He say, well, if you're going to be that way, I'm going to go talk to people who are more religious. He says, no, just, just tell me what things. And Cleopas is... He's moved by this. It, it opens the door for him to actually begin to share what's going on. Before we go any further, I just want you to know something. When we read something like this, we can assume that if this is the way that Jesus rolls 2,000 years ago in dealing with people who can't make sense of all the stuff that they've seen, we should assume that Jesus still behaves that same way with us, which is to say you don't have to go find Jesus. He will find you, and he will ask you, what are you thinking? What's going on in your mind? 
How are you translating the events of your life, the circumstances that are currently going on? It's very powerful. You know, you might be confused, you might be hurt, you might be depressed, dealing with doubt. Talk to the man. Now, we return to our text. Cleopas kind of opens up. He says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. Now, these are the facts. Cleopas has done a wonderful job of just reporting. Here are the facts. We thought he was a prophet. Our own people arrested him bogusly, and they handed him over to the Romans, and they crucified him. Now, if you're a historian, if you have any degree of, of knowledge of ancient history, both believers and atheists alike will say, yeah, we agree with that. This is clearly who history says Jesus was. He was thought to be a great prophet. He was betrayed and turned over and arrested by his own people, and he was killed on a Roman cross. We still have to deal with all those facts. They're dealing with the facts. Cleopas says, here's the information. But then, see what happens next. Cleopas takes a stab at interpreting the data. And this is really important. How we interpret data, how we interpret facts, determines our whole worldview. And our worldview then determines how we interpret facts, right? Listen to the way that he interprets the data. He says, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Now, I want you to enter into the story and take on the disappointment and disillusionment that Cleopas just presented before us. I mean, do you hear it? Here's what he just said. He said, we had high hopes for this Jesus. We were sold on this man. We left everything to follow him for a couple of years now. We were convinced that he was the chosen one, the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one of God who would restore the prominence of Israel. We were sure, we were sure he was gonna be our nation's greatest leader, the greatest of all kings, the champion of our country who would liberate us from the iron fist of Rome. But clearly, we were wrong. I mean, here's how we know, right? Because he was arrested by our own leaders and he was publicly crucified on a Roman cross. The bad guys win again. And, you know, he said some stuff about the third day, but now it is a third day. As far as we know, he's still dead. Game over. Back to life as usual. Maybe some other Messiah will come along. Maybe there is no God. Maybe we are actually all alone and nobody's coming to help. Can you relate with this dark line of thinking? I mean, have you ever had your hopes and your expectations so focused and you had such great optimism about the future only to be so disillusioned when your hopes were crushed and your expectations were disappointed? You know, don't skip to the end. You have to find your place in the story because here's what I know, 25 years of doing this, <laughs> 44 years of life, all right? Christmas is typically a torturous dance of hope and disappointment for most of us. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, most of our lives is pain management. It just is. And the older you get, the more that's what you do. It's pain management. We're managing the darkness in ourselves. We're managing the darkness around us. We're just kind of managing life. And a lot of us do better than others. But quite frankly, I mean, that's kind of what we do, right? And then we come around Christmas, and something about this virgin named Mary and this baby in a manger and just the general sense of maybe things are going to be okay. And we lift our head up to, to put it into the light of this hope that maybe God's listening 
Maybe he does care. Maybe he's going to make things better in my life. And then we get to about the 26th, 27th, 28th day of December, the first, second, eighth day of February, and we just get crushed by winter. We're disillusioned by the darkness. We're disappointed in ourselves and other people. And before long, maybe we're a little bit lower than we were when we started. This happens to a lot of people. And I, I think that's where Cleopas, I think that's where he is. Disillusioned, depressed, disappointed. This is very much the human condition. And so when we hear the atheists say, God is dead, that there is no God, like these two weary travelers outside of Jerusalem, our sad hearts are inclined to agree. And you want to know why? Because we've misinterpreted the data. We've done our very best to make sense of what we have seen and heard through the lenses of our culture, our intelligence, our common sense, the books we've read, the movies we've watched. We, we've tried to make sense of it all by going to church or joining the gym or seeking the spirit world through meditation or whatever. We simply cannot make sense of it all. And it crushes us. Young mom came up to me after the first service. She said, you're talking to me. She had a three-year-old little girl next to her. She said, I got a six-month-old baby at home, and she's dying. I just can't make sense of any of that. You know, if you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, live a little bit longer, <laughs> and you will. This is the human condition, and it is captured in the gospel in this very moment, this deep disillusionment that these people are going through. And I want to tell you something. This is what you're going to hear over and over again. You know, the facts are the facts. We saw him crucified. We saw him die. Death wins. Terrorists rule the world. Nobody is honest or caring or trustworthy. So much suffering in the world. We're all alone after all. That's how it looks to us. That's how we've interpreted the data. You know, that particular very dark line of thinking is now growingly, increasingly, the predominant worldview of our culture. There's no God. There's no God. We're all just accidental bumping, you know, colliding atoms that accidentally over time and chance just kind of formed into human beings. And when we start, you know, when we ever we stop bumping around together, then we're dead and it's over. You know, if you watch any TV or you attend a public school, this is now the doctrine. But watch what happens next. There's a new bit of information here that is introduced. A mystery is revealed. There comes about a rumor of resurrection. In verse 21 we read, Cleopas goes on, he says, you know, some of the women of our company, they amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning and they did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Uh, some of those of, of us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. <laughs> right. So we've related with the dark, disappointing place of Cleopas and the other disciple on the road to Emmaus. But now here comes a divine pause. Now this is a divine pause. This is a divine interruption in the middle of our dark thought that just smacks right into the middle of human history. It just says, whoa. Because here comes a whisper, and it says, he's not dead. He's risen. 
and these disciples, you know, what are they going to, what are they going to think about this? How are they going to, how are they going to take that in? Because you know, I've never actually seen anybody come back from the dead who was publicly crucified for three days. You know, I mean, how could they possibly believe this is true? And and you kind of heard what they want. They said, you know, but him they did not see. In other words, because if they had seen him, I mean, if the women had seen him, or if Peter had seen him, or somebody had actually seen him, I mean, if I could see him like the great doubter Thomas, you know, if I could put my finger in the hole in his hand or into the wound in his side, well, you know, then I would believe. And isn't it so ironic that they're saying that to the risen Jesus who's walking right next to him? See, this is so beautiful. You couldn't even make up a story like this. There's so much tremendous tension here. They're saying, well, we'd believe if we could see him. And they're saying it to him. And all we know is that they were kept from seeing him. And you want to know why they were kept from seeing him? Because they had the completely wrong idea of what the son of God and a king would look like. You see, they, they just would have never accepted anything short of him riding on the white horse and pulling his sword and saying, go Israel and down with Rome. And they're just totally not getting it. They have completely misinterpreted the data. And so it blinds them from seeing that Jesus is standing right there next to them. I mean, you know what? If Jesus came and stood right next to you today, if you continue to try to interpret all the data, everything that happened in your life as though you're the center of the universe, you're still not going to see him. But listen, my skeptic friends, <laughs> you don't have to see Jesus personally stand next to you and stick your hand in the hole, you know, and all that kind of thing in order to understand that he is risen. Listen, Jesus is going to answer the question in verse 25. Listen to him. Here's what he says, so powerful. He says, <laughs> I think with a little smile on his face, he says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ would suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, we don't have all night. You have stuff to do. But listen, let me just give you a little bit of a little Sunday school lesson. What he's going to do, they had a seven-mile journey, so they had a little time. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's just going to go through all the scriptures that these people already know. He's going to say, that was me, that was me, that was me. He's going to lead them to the fire of Babylon. Remember this old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they've been thrown into the fire by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar because they've been trying to be faithful to God, and the fire's really hot, and Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and says, hey, I thought there were three of those guys, but I see four, and the fourth one is like one who's of the son of God. Jesus said, yeah, that was me. You see, I was there to show you that that's the way I save. I don't blow the fire out. I get into the fire with you. And he's gonna take them back to ancient Egypt, and the great story you know, that, we, that we find in Exodus 12, and he's gonna say, you know, that... That whole, you know, the, the hand of death was coming over, the judgment of God. And remember, it was, they had to slay the, the, the unblemished lamb and put the blood of the lamb around the lentils on the door. And then when the angel of death saw the blood of the lamb, the, the, the justice of God would pass over. That was me. You see, I, I'm the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. The whole manna that came down from heaven, the bread that sustained him in the wilderness, that was me, because I'm the bread of life. He's just going to keep going back and pointing to every single scripture, every single prophecy, everything. And, he, and slowly but surely, he's going to help them to understand that every word that God has ever spoken to humanity, 
has always been pointing to Jesus. It's all about him. Let me pause for a second. If you were to just take a survey of human history, of the billions of billions of people who have ever lived, and you're going to measure their influence, just, just looking at human history, who sticks out? I mean, in the way that the world's greatest passion is represented in art, music, architecture, and movements, versus where the world's greatest anger seems to be stirred up based upon one name, whose name would that be? If you were going to look at the way that we keep track of time and the way that we curse, whose name keeps popping up? Jesus, right? Wouldn't you have to say, thank you, well said. Wouldn't you have to say that it seems to always point back to him? And that is what these travelers are now beginning to understand, that all of it, it all points to Jesus. It always has. It always will. And as Jesus begins to make this clear, and they begin to understand that it was always going to be a suffering servant. It was always going to be death and resurrection. That's how Jesus saves. He's not going to get rid of all the evil. He's going to enter into the evil and take it upon himself and redeem it because there's some of that evil that's in us. And if he destroyed all of evil, he'd just destroy us. There'd be no hope for any of us. Then you see what happens in the story. If you continue to read the story, is that their hearts begin to burn within them. They recognize truth and it begins to just like, bubble up inside of them, and, and their eyes are beginning to open. But then there's a moment that happens. Did you see it? Jesus is going to keep going on, and they come to a point of decision. You know, is this uh, just a warm and fuzzy holiday service, or do you invite the stranger in? And we look at verse 29, it says, But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. <laughs> You know, what is so true in the physical here is obviously meant to be so much more powerful in the spiritual. You can't deny that Jesus is the center of history. And if you really think about it, it all just points to him. And if you'll continue to hear what he has to say in reinterpreting the facts, that's going to become more and more and more powerfully convincing. But you still have to make a decision. Are you going to keep walking and just kind of blow this off? Or are you going to invite him in? They invite him in, and here's this most beautiful picture. He comes in as their guest, and he serves them. He feeds them, and you know what he feeds them? He feeds them himself, the bread of life, and here's how we know. Because when he breaks bread and he serves them, here's what we read in verse 31. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. Do you see what just happened there? You see, when Jesus is nothing more than data, he's the unrecognizable stranger who's physically, you know, present out there in history, right? But at the moment that our hearts burn within us and we invite him in, he becomes the recognizable Savior who lives within us. And we see that immediately because these two get up at night and they run all the way back to Jerusalem. It changes their lives forever. Listen. Take these words to heart. Whatever road you're on, you know, maybe your marriage is a mess. 
Maybe you're, you just lost your job. Maybe you're in financial insecurity. You know, maybe your girlfriend just broke up with you. I don't know. You know. Maybe you just got cancer. We're all on a road. I'm on my road. You're on your road. But here's what I can tell you from this text is that whatever road you're on, he's coming right up alongside of you. And he's going to ask you this question. What are you thinking? What's on your mind? Tell me how you're feeling. Don't hold back. You won't hurt my feelings. Just be honest. And then here's what you do is you just tell him, I hurt everywhere. I'm very disillusioned by what I see. I don't understand all of these things that are happening in my life. I really can't make sense of it all. But here's my best stab. And he'll very patiently listen to you. And then here's what he's going to do. Is he's, if you listen, he's going to reinterpret the data for you. He'll draw you deeper into the scripture. He'll show you, actually, it's really, it's really all about me. And I'm not dead. I'm alive. And I'm right here. And I got you. But then you're going to have to make a choice. You either say, well, I find that interesting, or you invite him in. And I'm going to ask you right now, if you would, to invite him in. Because when Christ comes in you, the old is gone, and the new starts coming. It's Christmas. This is the gospel. Invite him in. Will you pray with me? We have spent so much of our lives considering you as this visible stranger out there. But that is not why you came. That is not why you died and it's not why you rose again. You came to make sense of all of this, Lord. And I, I just pray for those of us who struggle on a dark path that there will be light that shines in this darkness that we will see that you have always been there, you've always been speaking to us from the very beginning of time. It's always been about you, it's been about death and resurrection, and that there is hope. And I pray for even the most skeptical persons that they will consider that you are the very center of history and that you have come to make sense of it all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.